Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. You don't think that it's time that somebody cared enough to have a dream? Why are you getting so upset? This is not about you. Yes, it is. You are a human affront to all women, and I am a woman. At some point, you got to decide for yourself who you are. Can't let nobody make that decision for you. How do you go about getting an exorcism? I beg your pardon? Hi, this is Mark Kermode. Thanks for downloading this Kermode on Film podcast, which this week is the second part of our extended interviews from the first ever online Mark Kermode Live in 3D show. If you're a regular listener, you'll know that every month I do a live show at the BFI South Bank, but with everything that's going on at the moment, the BFI South Bank is closed. So we managed to do the show online with our guests speaking to me virtually. You can see a video of that show by going to the BFI YouTube channel. But of course, for the YouTube version, we had to edit the interviews. Here at Kermit on Film, however, there's space for a load of stuff that didn't make it into the video version. So, sit back and enjoy some extended interviews with the great Greg Proops, the BFI's new CEO, Ben Roberts, and first, the great Mira Sayal. So, welcome to the show, all the way from, I think, I believe, London, Mira Sale. Mira, welcome to MK3D, the first virtual one we've ever had to do. It's a show for 50 shows, and now suddenly a virtual show. Welcome to the show. How, where are you? Are you in London? Yes, we're holed up in, in North London, not far from the Phoenix. You're one oh, of your very nice. favourite yeah. favorite places. Mm. I grew up around there. I absolutely, you know, I, I absolutely love that area. So how are you managing? Firstly, how are you getting through? What are you doing to get you through lockdown? <sighs> Lots of deep breathing. Um, well, I've got three generations in the house. Um, so kids have come home. Mum lives with us. So that's a, it's a sitcom. I'm living in a sitcom, <laughs> sickly, but quite a happy one. Um, no, we're lucky at the most, you know, we've got a garden. So at least we don't feel too cooped up catching up on loads of movies as lots of people are uh, trying to find the one film we can all watch as a family is a little challenging um but we're managing just about um and just sort of trying to stay positive and healthy and hoping that we will all burst forth after this with passion and creativity and ready to do the stuff we love again what have you managed to watch with everybody together? Because that isn't that's a terrifying challenge, getting something that everyone can watch. It's really hard. Uh, well, the other night we watched Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? That was a good one. Um, Galaxy Quest has been a firm favourite. I love Galaxy. I love <laughs> Galaxy Quest. We did a screening of Galaxy <laughs> Quest down in uh, in Cornwall just before the lockdown happened at the Plaza, um, and we, sh- we showed a 35mm print of it, and I it just tore the roof off the place it's so fantastic that is it's such so a great fantastic movie. and so funny enough it it wasn't actually that well received was it when it first came out incredibly it's generally regarded now as the best star trek film never made <laughs> and uh, there was i think there was a weird thing at the time that people weren't quite sure 
what to expect of it. So it wasn't seen by a huge number of people, although the people that, that saw it loved it. But its reputation has grown over the years. And of course, the great thing was we were sh when we showed it at the Plaza, you know, people knew all the jokes, people knew all the lines, but people were, you know, virtually joining in. I mean, it's getting to be like a kind of Rocky Horror. I think it's so funny. Mm -hmm. And it's also, it's so well done. Because it and does so take moving. Oh, yeah, really moving. Really it gets moving. me every time the end that by Grabfar's Hammer final scene is, is a, yeah, it's, it's, there's genuine emotion there. It's, a, it's so brilliantly clever. It says such a lot about the acting profession and about growing older and about our capacity for make believe and taking a leap of faith. I mean, there's so many layers to it, really. And on top of that, it's really, really funny. I think one of my favourite things in it is the moment in which the, the captain has to explain um, that, that, that they're actors and he's explaining this to a race who have no idea what pretending is. And he says, well, you know, we, we just, we're making it up. And the guy goes, why? why? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and I just think there's so much, uh, there's so much implied by that question. Why? You know, it's oh, it's it's heartbreaking. So, did it play well in your in your house? Did it go down well with with three generations of you? Oh yeah, it's a firm favourite. I mean, it's one of those ones you can watch again and again. Actually, um, we also love Coco. There's a few sort of classic animations that that's one of one of the top ones. Um, so yeah, we we do find them, and it, and it is um, it's a really good excuse actually to to you know because this is such a unusual. We keep using the word unprecedented, but that's what it is. It's that kind of period that you just have to go with the flow, don't you? It's, there's nothing in your control. So all you can do is savour the time you have, I think. Now, you have been managing to use your time creatively because I know that you and some other people as well have been individually doing work in isolation. So tell us about what you've been doing. Oh, yeah, I've been... Um doing a project called, funnily enough, Unprecedented, Unprecedented. with um, Long Theatre, um, who have uh, commissioned a number of writers to produce um, little 10-minute shorts. And the one I'm, I've just finished shooting um, is written by the brilliant April DeAngelis, and it's called House Party. And it is about a bunch of people on the same street who've set up a Zoom meet for the first time and obviously things don't go to plan um as we all seem to be spending most of our life on zoom at the moment it's uh, it's it seemed quite a prescient thing to do so how did it come together because presumably it came together since the lockdown happened so the whole thing was organized at long distance yes basically all the writers were contacted um the actors were contacted we all filmed our roles on zoom um <laughs> I can see your face. <laughs> Honestly, every actor I talk to at the moment, it's, it's like, we've all got to learn everything. You just have to become this super technical person all of a sudden. I mean, for people of my generation, it's hard enough working out of the remote. You know, I'm usually calling <laughs> to help me with stuff like that. And now suddenly I've got to know how to record on Zoom and download audio files and all kinds of jazzy stuff that I've never come across before. I will never take a techie for granted ever, ever again. Because honestly, it's it's tricky. My own discovery on the technical front has been I will never take a teenager for granted ever again because <laughs> I, you know, I have a teenage boy in the house and it's like Gabriel, I can't make this work. How do you? Where do you put? How? Do, where's the on button? Why isn't this? Why is what's going on with? I have just not because I'm completely technically inept. Also, because of where I live. I mean, you're in cosmopolitan East Finchley or London or you know, I live in the New Forest. 
And the maximum, and I'm not kidding this, the maximum speed we ever get here in terms of the internet is three megabytes. That's top. Maximum three, okay? Usually one. Maximum three. Is that so bad? Could, that's bad. I can tell by your voice it's bad. Apparently that's not good because <laughs> apparently if you're like, even even if you're in the village, they're getting 45, 60... <laughs> three so when people say just it's okay just record it and upload the file go yeah that's fine that will take till next week but it will be absolutely fine indeed this is what i found when i mean funnily enough our internet speed's not great probably because everyone in the house is on a device (laughs) so um i i had to i started downloading the footage we'd shot for for the play and um about four hours later i just dropped a little group email going gosh this takes a long time and everyone's going as took 10 minutes, what are you doing? <laughs> and it literally took me all day. I now, mean, where can, crazy. where can we see it, Mira? Well, that's a good question. I don't actually know, but I think it's fairly imminent. I think they're going out on the BBC in the next month. Fantastic. And the whole series is called Unprecedented? Unprecedented, indeed. And your particular segment is called? House Party. And there's fantastic. some fantastic actors in it. And Jay Morton, Olivia Williams, and Fenella Walgar, really great people. Cecilia Noble, Rashan Stone, which I haven't gotten anyone, but yeah, great bunch of. Uh, it was it was really good fun. Just quite um, all of us. We had our actors doing technology faces, which is mainly that. <laughs> Could you say that? It's that <laughs> it's befuddled stare, waiting for something to happen. Uh, mine is this. Mine is. <laughs> yeah, with the finger up to like. <laughs> yeah, is that is that the is that the camera? Is that the camera? Can't just let us be creative, Mark? Honestly, can't we just yeah. be? Why do you have to push the buttons? <laughs> is there anybody involved in it that you haven't met physically? Have you met everyone in the real world at some point that you were working with, or is there anyone that you've only met on Zoom? Most of them I've only met on Zoom. Actually, I think maybe two. Two of the people, Every, so, everyone else was re- remote friends. Yeah. So, so you've you've so you've now made a piece of work with people whom you have never physically met, but you have only met through the internet. Yes, I'm told modern dating's a bit like that, Mark. <laughs> Not that I'd know. <laughs> at the point that at the point that I stopped dating, you still put ten p's and two p's in the phone pops. <laughs> I, still... I love you. I love yeah. Uh, I tell my kids, we used to have one phone in the house and it used to sit in the hallway and you had to ask permission to use it. Yeah. yeah. There, there you go. A, see, there was a thing called a party line. Remember that? There was two houses oh, yeah. would have would have one phone and you had to arrange that one of them would use them from six till seven and the other one would use from seven till eight. But of course, if you pick the phone up, you could hear the conversations yeah. from you could hear the conversations from next door. And, uh, but of course, we never did that. Um, now... One of the other reasons that I've asked you to come on the show is to choose both uh, a movie that changed your life and a guilty pleasure. And I know you've done both. So let's start <clears> with, <throat> tell me the movie that changed your life, which is the movie that's really important to you. The movie that changed my life <clears throat> is called Imitation of Life, um, which is a 1959 film directed by Douglas Sirk. And um <clears throat> Quite, I came across it quite accidentally, I think on one of those afternoons where you're ill at home and the telly's just on. And I was probably about eight or nine, little little Indian kid, you know, parents had come over from India. Uh, I was born in the country, but I still felt quite an outsider in my own way. Yeah. And this film came on, which is about um, a 
uh, white American woman called uh, called Lara, played by Lara Turner, who um, is a budding actress, and she meets a black woman, fantastically played by Juanita Moore, called Annie, who finds her daughter when she goes missing on the beach, and a friendship ensues, and Annie becomes her personal assistant slash maid slash best friend and they move in together and both the women have daughters the same age Susie and um and Sarah Jane now Annie's daughter uh Sarah Jane uh, is a very light-skinned girl and she passes herself off as white she begins to see that the girl that she's grown up with her best friend is treated very differently in the world she doesn't want to be treated any differently and she's able to pass herself off as white and so as the girls grow up this becomes a bigger and bigger thing um i don't want to give the plot away but the whole film for me absolutely drew me in because here was a character that i'd never seen before on film that absolutely spoke to me about the the life i was living about the situation i was in where I felt one way, I was seen another way, where I was torn between self-loathing, but also wanting to take pride in who I was. And in the journey of Sarah Jane, you see a girl who cannot admit that her mother is her mother because she doesn't want to be seen as black. And it's very hard not to give away the ending of the film, but um, as you can imagine, this is a fairly tragic arc of the journey. And... I watched the final quite heartbreaking scene and I honestly sobbed for about half an hour. I could not get over how it had touched me and how it had illuminated something quite profound for me, which was about identity and belonging and, and not taking on the shame that the world throws at you for who you are, but having the courage to live through that and claim your difference as something beautiful. And that film was the first film that ever spoke to me in that way. Toby! What difference does it make? You love me. All the kids talking behind my back. Is it true? No. Are you black? No, I'm as white as you. You're lying. I'm not. You're lying. I'm not. I'm not. So it's interesting because I remember watching Imitation of Life. Um, I rewatched it when Todd Haynes's uh, Far From Heaven came out because Todd Haynes had kind of cited it as a film that was really important to him. And I, I, mean, I, I, have the, I had the idea in my head that I'd seen it before because it's kind of considered to be a classic, but I had, if I had seen it before, I had completely forgotten about it. And the thing I was amazed by was how, firstly, how intense it is. But secondly, how daring some of the drama is in terms of, you know, the, the issues that it addresses and, and the kind of the emotional force with which it, it addresses them. And when you say that thing about it at the end, you end up sobbing, you know, uncontrollably. I think it is, a, I mean, it's a, it's a melodrama, it's a classic mm. Douglas Sirk melodrama, but it really is a powerful movie to watch. I mean, the, the social issues and, and, and the openness with which it discusses race is quite extraordinary for, for its time. There's, there's an absolutely excruciating scene where um, Sarah Jane is at school and she obviously hasn't told anyone that she is the child of a black woman and her mum turns up because she's forgotten something yeah. looks for her lunch. 
and she is mortified and her mother knows that she's mortified. And then there's an echo of that much later on where her mother, and then very estranged by this time because Sarah Jane cannot live with her legacy that, you know, she can't live with the way she is. Um, and her mother comes to find her where she's working. Um, and, Sarah Jane says, if you love me, you'll leave me alone and you'll never contact me again. And uh, a white woman that she's working with pops her head round and says, are you okay? And it's her mother that says, no, I just used to look after her. And her mother, to save her own daughter's yeah. shame, set, pretends to be her maid. Oh, my goodness. And the sort of levels of self-denial and self-hatred yeah. and also the understanding of the mother that I to love her child that much that she's willing to say, I will give you your peace, even though it means I, I can't see you anymore. Is it, yeah. I mean, it's extraordinary, really. Yeah, I mean, all those scenes when, you know, in, in which they are distant and estranged, and, it is, and it's the distance, which is both the emotional distance and the physical distance. I mean, I thought those scenes were astonishing, not least because of how brave they are, because yeah. you just don't expect that to be in that kind of mainstream melodrama film. The other thing that's worth saying is the film looks fantastic. I mean, it- Lush, isn't it? Yeah. Apparently, um, Lana Turner's wardrobe was one of the most expensive in any film ever. <laughs> it cost over a million dollars or something ridiculous, because they were, you know, yeah. they, I guess that's how they sold what I suppose on paper was a fairly tricky controversial film is that you can look at her in all the nice frocks it's fine um <laughs> but yeah i mean but then i mean that's what he's famous for isn't he he's so lush with his his coloring he's yeah. not afraid of i suppose maybe that's why i responded to it it had a whiff of bollywood about it in the same way that hindi films are just not afraid of those big emotions and of big heartbreak and they are seen as melodramatic by some people but for some emotions, that's the only way you can go, right? Because they are too big. You have to go that way. You have to go with them. Well, I mean, I mean I'm a huge sucker for melodrama anyway. I've, I've never understood people being down on it because, you know, melodrama is, you know, music and drama. That's that's the kind of root of it. And, and I love that because I think that what I go to the movies for is to have an emotional response. And that's what melodrama is. Absolutely. And uh, it certainly did, in the same way that when I read To Kill a Mockingbird, changed the way how I saw the world that film really did change the way how i began to see the world and a glimmer of sort of self-understanding of the journey that might be ahead and also how i had to handle it because the thought of me you know denying my mum in that very sort of profound epic biblical way i couldn't imagine doing that and if and if that was the price you know if the price to pay was that it wasn't worth it um but I think it's uh, it's 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 so clever in the way that it he manages to make a commercial film which brings in and did do very very well and brought yeah. in a big box office and almost subversively and brilliantly slip in these very pertinent and hard questions. Now, as a complete gear change, we also asked you to choose a guilty pleasure, and I have to say. Your guilty pleasure is not guilty at all. <laughs> um, what, were you, what did you choose for your guilty pleasure? I chose When Harry Met Sally. I, enough says. Yeah, but it's okay. So, <laughs> okay, so tell us about the first time you saw it, because um, believe me, 
I love When Harry Met Sally. I, I have seen When Harry Met Sally so many times and so I have no guilt about it. So when did you first see it? I, th- I saw it at the cinema, I think, when it came out. It was 89, I think it must yeah, have been. Sounds about right. Yeah. Um, and just remember thinking, well, that's the perfect rom-com. It ticked every single box. I love Nora Ephron's writing anyway, yeah. but she's on absolutely top form here. Every single line is crafted. You absolutely believe in Harry and Sally, Billy Crystal, Meg Ryan. You believe in that trajectory of their relationship. It, it asks the big question that we'll, we'll always be asking in relationships. Can men and women ever be friends without sex getting in the way? Um, and you're rooting for both of them to be together, but you also know that they've totally got to change both of them in order to earn each other properly, which is, of course, is a classic rom-com. And there's just so many quotable lines and the music's brilliant and everyone feels real. They just feel real. And, you know, stuff like transitional relationship and high-maintenance woman <laughs> kind of came from that film. She sort Indeed. of invented terms that have now entered the dating lexicon, you know. It's it just is. a brilliant film. It is definitely true that if you now use the phrase somebody wants everything on the side, everyone knows what they mean. And that's that I think is the genius of Nora Ephron. I mean, this there, there as you say there are so many quotable lines in it. Right down to the the the, the right down to the idea of, as you say, the transitional relationship, the high maintenance person, which is now all completely passed into the modern lexicon. Now we asked you to choose a couple of scenes. One of the scenes that you chose is the scene after. Harry and Sally have got together for the first time, which happens because Sally has had this moment of, you know, he was, she was meant to be the transitional. which it wasn't that he didn't want to marry, just didn't want to marry me. And he me. goes around. And then, so what is it that you like about the scene? Because we'll, we'll play the scene. What is it that you like about it? And what is it that touches you about it? I love the fact that um, both of them, both Harry and Sally think that it's, that was a huge mistake because, of course, sex has entered the relationship and it's probably broken it. They, yeah. they can't be friends anymore. I love the fact that you have the split screen of the, the men talking and the women talking, and it really illustrates the difference between men and women and how they handle stuff. Yeah. And my absolute favourite bit is the last line, which I quote more than any other, I think, from the film, which is Carrie Fisher turning to her fella and saying, tell me I'll never have to be out there again. Amen to that. Which is what every smug couple feels when they're listening to their single friend's disasters. Yours. Hello. I'm sorry to call so early. Are you all right? No one I know would call at this hour. I did something terrible. What did you do? No one I know would call at this hour. It's so awful. I need to talk. What happened? What's the matter? Harry came over last night. I went over to Sally's last night. Because I was upset that Joe was getting married. one thing led to another. And before I knew it, we were kissing. To make a long story short, we we did did it. They did it. That's great, Sally. We've been praying for it. We should have done it in the first place. For months we've been saying you should do it. You guys belong together. It's like killing two birds with one stone. It's like two wrongs make a right. How How was was it? it? The during part was good. I thought it was good. But then I felt suffocated. Then I guess it wasn't. Jesus, I'm sorry. No worries. I had to get out of there. He just disappeared. I feel so bad. I'm so embarrassed. I don't blame you. That's horrible. I think I'm coming down with something. I think I'm catching a cold. Look, look, it would have been great if it worked out, but it didn't. Mm. I should never go to bed with anyone when you found out your last boyfriend is getting married. Who's that talking? Who? Is that Jess on the phone? It's Jane Fonda on the VCR. It's Brian Gumbel. Do you want want to come come over for breakfast? breakfast? No, I'm not up to it. No, I feel too awful. Good. Good. I mean, it's so early. But call me later if you want. I'll call you later, okay? Okay, bye. 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 God. I know. 
Tell me I'll never have to be out there again. I think it's not even smug couples. I mean, I, you know, even, even, I mean, even at any point, no matter what's going on in your relationship, the phrase promise me I'll never be out there again <laughs> is always the old, I mean, you know, Linda and I've been married many decades and, you know, but that's it. Just promise me I will never be out there again is something that absolutely everyone can understand. And of course, actually, when I first saw the film, because I was, you know, I was single and a lot thinner. And um, but even <laughs> even then it made sense because you just think, yeah, who wants to be in who wants to be in this madness? It makes no sense at all. I know. And you're just so and you're just so happy that they found each other because Carrie Fisher at the beginning um is just you know with a rolodex of oh no he you know he might be oh no he, he's he's about to get divorced we might be in there little rolodex of like, <laughs> the desperation of the single woman <clears throat> and and she and Nora Ephron's really sort of you know she she's open about it in a way that you know some feminists have said oh no but you know a, a woman that's going out with a married man and la, 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 because of course you know Carrie Fisher's character's going out with a married man. And actually, I, for me, Nora Ephron is a hugely feminist writer because she actually cuts to the truth beyond the politics of just, this is what people go through. This is how lonely it is. This is how hard it is. This is how desperate you get. And yet, peppered through the film are these beautiful nuggets of couples who have been together for years and years saying how they met and why they've lasted. And that, for me, lifts the film from a great film into a brilliant film because there's such, just something really special about those, those stories that are interweaving Harry, Harry and Sally's story. And, of course, right at the end, it's, it's them. It's Harry and Sally. And it actually ends with them saying, you know, they had the most fantastic wedding with the cake, but the thing was, was on the side. side. <laughs> because not everybody wants it. And it's so, it's so beautifully done. Plus, the really clever thing about that is, it sounds like it wouldn't work. It sounds like a really kitschy idea that just wouldn't make sense in terms of the drama. But it, it does. I also think the, 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 the other genius of it is, and I've watched that film a lot of times, I still go... Are they are they actually being interviewed or are they acting? Are they documentary inserts? You know, and in fact, I'm I'm not even sure that I know to this day. I know that the Harry and Sally characters on, mm -mm. but actually to this day, I'm not even sure whether are they based on real conversations? Are they based on real interviews? Because they are so convincing. Well, apparently, when when Nora Ephron was doing the research, um, she and she wanted time off just the writing process. She went around the film crew and the production office that, that she was working on and interviewed people about how they met. So I think some of those interviews came verbatim from, from, the, from them. I mean, she famously said, didn't she, everything is copy. And she was so good at just listening, just listening and getting to the nugget of stuff. Uh, there was, there was a, a, a book that Nora Ephraim wrote, which was called, I think it's called I Remember Nothing. And um, uh, yeah. have you read it? And yeah. there's a, I, my memory is failing terribly. I mean, it's an age thing, but it's there was a she was there was a reading from her on uh, on the radio. I mean, she's you know greatly missed, um, greatly greatly missed. I had the, the pleasure of interviewing her a couple of times, and you know, so smart, so funny, so sharp. But she writes in in um, uh, in I remember nothing uh, about this thing. But she was on a plane and she was going to Las Vegas and she couldn't remember who it was that she was going to meet, but she thought it's all right. When I get to the airport, I'll, I'll meet them and it'll be fine. And she gets to the airport 
and she can't remember why she's going there but then she sees somebody walking towards her and she thinks oh this is fine i recognize that person and the person comes up and says hello i'm your sister (laughs) (laughs) that is that's bad memory lapse (laughs) (laughs) i just thought that was absolutely absolutely great and i you know i I love the authenticity with which she writes, and it is just just so funny. So here's my question to you. In fact, mm. my only question: Why do you think when Harry Met Sally is a guilty pleasure? Because surely it's it's like liking Citizen Kane or something. It's a classic. It's I a know. classic. It is a classic. I suppose I interpreted guilty pleasure as if I could just have the television to myself <laughs> and lie on lie on it and eat chocolates. What would I choose? What would be the thing that I'd choose above anything else to just make me happy? And it would it would be that film. And would the rest of your family not go with that choice? I mean, would you get would you get kickback from other members saying, no, we want Galaxy Quest or Yeah, possibly, yeah. I don't think rom coms are high on the sort of Venn diagram of family likes. It has to be something with a bit of action in it, a bit too mushy and slushy for some <laughs> some in the family, Mark. I love it. <laughs> well, look, I mean, you know, I I, I think it's a stone cold classic. I, I think it's a brilliant choice, and, and I and thank you so much for choosing it. So, Mira, it's been great speaking to you. Thanks for coming on the first ever virtual uh, MK3D, and I look forward to seeing uh, the new piece. So, it's uh, once again the the whole the whole series is called Unprecedented, and your episode is called House Party by House April Party. Angelus, and it'll be on the BBC in the very near future. We think. Yes, don't have a TX date yet, but I'm sure it, it will be in the next month. I would imagine they're editing it now. Okay, well, thank you ever so much for taking the time to join us. Love to everyone and thank you. Uh, look forward oh, and to seeing you. a little message again. from Sanjeev. Have you watched Unforgotten yet? Because you have no excuse. You've got all the time in the world. Yeah, okay. You, you can say this to Sanjeev. You know, the really weird thing about it is this. Since lockdown happened, I've been more busy than before lockdown happened. Because things that used to take 10 minutes now take five hours. Yeah, I hear because, you. You know, it's the weirdest thing. Can you just do a thing? Go, yeah, and then... I'll just connect this bit of kit to that bit of kit and then I'll do the thing. So tell us, I will, I will, I will, because I know that it's going to be brilliant. And, and, and I, I'm, I'm, I will. <laughs> I will pass that on. All right. Thank you. Mira, thank you very much. It's been a pleasure having you on the show. Total pleasure. Thanks, Mark. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need a fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrowcom slash ACAST. That's burrowcom slash ACAST. burrowcom slash ACAST. So it's an absolute delight to be able to say 
from all the way across the Atlantic. Welcome uh, to MK3D Virtual Edition, Greg Proops. Greg, how you doing? I'm okay, Mark. How are you? I'm fine. I, just in honor of your jacket, I'm going to do this. Yeah, that's what I'm talking that, about. I feel that we're now actually. The, the, I tell you, there's a. I love these glasses, and I'll tell you why. I am. Um, uh, I was, you know, David Holmes, the musician. Um, oh, of course. Yeah. So he 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 produced his film Ordinary Love, which I absolutely loved, and uh, and I had gone to do a Q and A in Belfast, and he was wearing a pair of glasses with these frames, and I'm a big glasses fan, as I know mm. you are. And I said, "Wow, those are rocking frames." And he went, "No, oh, they're just they're just kind of cheap things, you know." Anyway, a couple of weeks later, he sent me a pair of the frames as a kind of no. thank you for coming to Belfast. Yeah. And then I, down in Cornwall, my next door neighbour in Cornwall, a guy called Mark Alexander, who is a, a, an optician, and I said, "Look, I, you know, I, I've got these lovely frames, but I, what I'd really like is to is to get some tinted lenses, you know, like not." So he said, "Okay." I said, "I've got a whole." range of tints and I, again i know you're a tints fan so i went through this whole bunch and i ended up with this with this kind of particular form of blue and i just put them on and i thought that's it the, uh, that's that's the rockiness pair of glasses and i looking across at you now what so what are your tints so that's kind of like a slightly purple these are these are purple um these are alan nickley and uh, i got purple tint put on them because i thought it looked so boss but i have another pair here of uh these are japanese frames uh, Matsunaga and I, these ones I got a brown tint on. So I wore oh. either of these on stage and yeah. then these Oliver Goldsmiths I had refurbished. And I love these ones. They're just giant. That's very nice. Right? That's very, very I, I don't nice. wear these on stage. I wear them for sunglasses usually, but because yeah, yeah, they're yeah. kind of dark and I bump into, I have my eyesight so awful. I bump into things anyway. And the so mine is my well, eyesight is terrible, but listen, look, it, I, I don't know whether I can show you this. If I put these in front of the lens, you can see what the world looks like through these. So hang on, look. Yeah. You see, it's just a kind of, just a very, very, very sort of slight, but it's really, what's really lovely is it makes everything look slightly cool. So it doesn't matter. I mean, yeah. you, you at the moment just look fantastic. Even when I take them off, you look fantastic. <laughs> so Greg, look, it's, it's lovely to have you on the show. I have to begin by asking you, I've, I've now been able to do this. I was, because we're in, I think, week four of, of lockdown here. And I made two, two fairly life-changing rules. The first one was I threw out all my Morrissey records, which was great. And the second <laughs> one was I decided, I mean, I haven't listened to them for ages because right. I can't, you know, but I just yeah. threw them all out. I'm keeping the Smiths ones. I can't play them, but I'm keeping yeah. them because I love Johnny Marr. And the other thing was I made a, a, a resolution to not listen to or read anything by the, um, you know, Cheeto faced shit given. And mm -hmm. it has been so brilliant. Every time the news is on and they've been carrying these news conferences, just turn it off because I just figure it's not my country. It is your country. How are you managing under the rule of that maniac? Of the Kremlin controlled carrot of mango Mussolini of sweet potato Stalin. Um, not very well. I mean, Jennifer and I are really lucky because we live in Los Angeles and yeah. our mayor locked the city down sooner than any other city except San Francisco, where I'm from. The mayor of right. San Francisco locks the city down on the 25th. And um, our governor um, jumped right into action, too. And we live in a city where they're actually doing things like right now, um, trying to feed everyone an active uh, effort to feed all the homeless people, all the disabled people, all the shut-ins, all the old people. Um, the mayor came on TV yesterday. You can volunteer online. I tweeted it out this morning. Like, this city's making a huge effort to try to keep it together. 
And our governor and our mayor come on every day and speak sense and talk about uh, compassion and what we can do and what we are doing. Um, I quit watching him about three days ago. I go out in my garage and smoke dope in the afternoon and, uh, which I would have done anyway, except that I'm working. But, uh, and uh, I was watching his uh, Corona rallies was what they are. He can't go out and whip up his uh, meathead base. So he goes on TV every day and just cries and whines and impugns people and lies and Mm -hmm. dissembles and whatnot. And it was very upsetting. And I'd be in here screaming and Jennifer's like, why are you watching it? So then I would watch it on Twitter, you know, like I'd listen to people's comments. So I've finally quit doing all of that. Now I can't. The next day, I'll get the highlights from the paper, you know, or TV or whatever, and I I can't listen to him anymore. But this is so great because this is like two ex- ex-addicts having a conversation about, you know, when did you kick, you know, you're, right. three, you're, you're three days clean. I'm like yep. three, three weeks clean. And I had exactly yep. the same thing that um, Linda, the good lady professor her into said, you have to stop, you have to stop doing it because it is making you ill. And, and, yeah. and, uh, and what good is it doing you? She said, said exactly the same thing. You said, if, if anything significant is said, you can read it in the news tomorrow. But yeah. otherwise, all you're doing is allowing this bile, this vile, putrid hatred to filter into your life. Just turn it off. And uh, I was kind of impressed when I saw that CNN were cutting away from mm. his conferences when he was on. And they were only coming back to them when like, somebody who actually knew something useful was on but i know it's been a great thing but it's very different for you you're actually living in the you know in the states so my my heart goes out to you not only for everything that's happening with coronavirus and you know so many people doing so much that is so practical but having to deal with this maniac encouraging people to break the quarantine to break Mm -hmm. lockdown to go out and you know claim their rights to poison everybody else right and then you know that those groups are uh, funded by uh, the Koch brothers and uh, the DeVos family. Um, Betsy DeVos, our secretary of education, is a billionaire. Her brother's Eric Prince, who runs Blackwater, uh, the mercenary group that helped us kill civilians in Iraq. And um, uh, like the Tea Party, it's not an actual grassroots movement. What we call it here when it's a fake grassroots movement and they're funded, you noticed all their signs of the same font? Like, how did that happen? Okay. That a lot of people they'd interview would have Southern accents that were protesting in like Wisconsin. So somehow they were brought there. Um, and I'm not a tinfoil hat conspiracy person. This is the truth. The Tea Party did not start on its own. It was funded by billionaires to rebel against Obama. And we call them AstroTurf is what they call it here, meaning it's fake. Grassroots. Okay, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Uh, so that's what's going on. It's a very small group of people. The, gr- the groups that you see on TV that are protesting, sometimes they're maybe a couple of hundred. That's not an enormous groundswell of sentiment. That's a very small minority. Most people, including Republicans, want the lockdown to continue. They know that it's the only way to get back to normal is if we lock everything down for six months, the curve will go down and then yeah. we can talk about, talk exactly. about going out to a restaurant or a movie and sitting 10 feet away from each other. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> well, I mean, here the, uh, you know, the slogan, as you know, is, uh, is stay home, protect the NHS, save lives. And obviously we are very blessed because we have the NHS. Yeah. Again, in America, you, you don't have um, a national health service. Oh, no. No, that's socialism, you see. Everything's socialism until this happens, when all of a sudden they found several trillion dollars under the couch at the White House to give to all the corporations to bail them out. You know, uh, they were ba- they're bailing out corporations that are so solvent they'll never go under. <laughs> and uh, 
You know, I, I think part of this, not to be, again, I, I don't want to sound like I'm living in a basement because I'm not. I'm living here in a, a fortress of prupitude. Uh, but uh, part, of the, part of the evil plan here is uh, to loot the treasury by giving all the money to their friends. And I think this gave them the opportunity to do that. Uh, on a very practical note, I mean, obviously you're, you know, you're, you're in lockdown as, as we are here. I saw a little video that um, Nick, who produces, uh, the, the, he's produced this segment, um, sent me of your shrine. What is the shrine? What is, what is, how did, where did that come from? Well, I was cleaning the garage a couple of weeks ago when we started this lockdown thingy. And uh, by the way, my garage is um, so clean. I've mopped it. I've dusted it. I've wiped every shelf off. I've thrown everything away. Uh, 20 million years of detritus, you know, stuff you find from high school, Mark. Yeah, yeah. Uh, tickets to a Queen concert that I went to in 1978. Wow. So, yeah, I, I, I found a scrapbook that had pictures of me and my cousin dressed up to go see ACDC. Wow. Uh, and they weren't headlining. That's how long ago it was. Oh, that's funny. They, they weren't headlining. Anyways, I took down all my baseball stuff from the area where it was. My, I'm a Giants fan. And I um, decided to build a, a, a shrine to the, uh, for the day when the, the virus is gone. Mm -hmm. And I started adding things to it. I had an illuminated crystal ball that's blue that you'll see. Um, I found a, a, these Rolling Stones stickers that I bought for Jennifer that are from like 81, I think. It's like Keith in a leopard vest, you know? <laughs> and uh, then I started to think about all the places where the, the virus was, Italy uh, and Spain and England, all the places that Jennifer and I have been. And of course, our huge attachment to England and Scotland. So I started adding tchotchkes, uh, that's a Yiddish word, uh, knickknacks, bric-a-brac, uh, yeah. uh, to uh, uh, the shrine, pictures, people that I love, uh, Diana Rigg, uh, Audrey Hepburn, Aretha Franklin, that kind of thing. Yeah. And then I decided to just keep expanding on it. And I add something almost every day to it. Yesterday, speaking of Memphis, when we were in Memphis, we went to Stax. There's a museum there. Yeah, no, I know, which is the most extraordinary thing, isn't it? It's absolutely beautiful. Isaac Hayes' Cadillac is there, and it's just, it's on a rotating, you know, uh, a turntable, and yeah, it's yeah. beautiful. It's, it's this, this golden, you know, chrome affair. And all the groups that um, played there, you know, Booker T and... Uh, um, uh, yeah, they've got, the they've got the they've got the organ that um, that Green Onions was played on, and all that kind of, which is which is a fantastic bit of history as well. And strangely, when we were taking the tour, uh, the guy said at the beginning of the tour, "Do you know which record's the biggest record in the history of Stacks?" And I don't know. I would have thought like uh, sitting on the dock of the bay or something. And he went, "No, Green Onions. Green, Green Onions yeah. built that studio. Like yeah, that record yeah. was so huge that it sold a bajillion copies." I know, um, and, then you, so, and then you see that organ, and it's tiny. It's yeah. this tiny little thing. And it's, oh, my God. You just think, oh, so, so much beauty came out of that tiny, tiny confined space. Yeah, and Booker T's still uh, out there, still working. I bought his biography, which was autographed, because uh, Jennifer's a huge Booker T fan. And, um, yeah, it was just so much fun. So yesterday I took uh, one, of the, one of the stickers I bought from Stax and put it on the shrine. Um, so I've got... The Stones and Aretha, B.B. King, Stax, all the stuff I love. Um, and every day I put something else out there and I have a candle and I put Christmas lights, fairy lights over it. And um, I light the shrine. I put on the light. I light the candle and I pray uh, that one day this will all be over and we'll all get to do what we love to do. Uh, you'll get to go to the pictures again. 
yeah, and yeah, we'll yeah. all get to go out to dinner and uh, 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 and be the traveling ham that I've been for 35 years, you know. Are you missing the cinema? Because I am finding that, uh, I mean, obviously now I'm still carrying on as a film critic, but I'm watching everything at home on laptops because everything right. has come to home viewing. And it's fine. I mean, you know, we're managing to keep it going. But I am really missing the experience of sitting in cinemas with other people. And I always used to be so grumpy about other people's behavior in cinemas, you know, mm -hmm. popcorn, noise, chair kicking, telephones. Frankly, right now, I would be happy to sit in the noisiest, popcorn <laughs> right? Right. You know, every everyone on their phones, light yeah. everywhere. People I yelling at the screen. <laughs> yeah, I just, I just want to be back in the. I mean, I, I stress to say, not in a Trumpy. I want to be back. I want to be back when it's safe, when everything yes. has gone away. But I, I do miss it. You miss that experience very much. So uh, you know that we have a film club here. Um, we have been running it for. Oh God, seven, eight years at least. And um, Jennifer does almost all the programming. I think I've picked three movies in like seven years. And uh, of course I picked Return of the Living Dead. That's my, so uh, on March 11th, I think was our last one or March 8th, which is way, seems way scary now that we mm -hmm. did this. Uh, we showed um, High and Low by mm -hmm. Kurosawa. And uh, the month before that we showed Ridicule um, by Patrice Leconte. And the month before that, we screened um, uh, What's Up Doc, just for laughs, you know. We, right. uh, and we showed them at this really cute theater in Santa Monica that you might have been to called the Arrow, A-E-R-O. I used haven't to show heard them, of it. I haven't been there. No, is it great? It's really cute. It's like a neighborhood cinema. Uh, we used to show them at the, I'm pointing to orient you because I'm in Los <laughs> Angeles. It's over there. Yeah. Up on Sunset is the Egyptian. Yeah. And the, Egyptian, the Egyptian's yeah. beautiful and has that. Uh, uh, you know, the courtyard with the, the glyphs and, you know, the ancient animals and Anubis and whatnot on it. Yeah. Uh, and they, they moved us from there because Netflix bought the thing. And they said, well, would you mind moving to the smaller neighborhood theater? And we've loved it ever since we've moved because we get women now. Uh, the, the Egyptian was kind of a dude affair. You know what I mean? <laughs> like, uh, and and the, uh, the arrow is decidedly more... Um, uh, neighborhood oriented so like people who live in santa monica come out and like you'd think who's going to come out to see a, a 25 year old french picture or a, a, a 50 year old uh japanese picture yeah, yeah. and the place was packed and uh, we eat popcorn and we get drunk and 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 we eat candy and it's just you know and our friends come and uh, and yeah, I really miss it, man. I, yeah. People always go, when was the last time you went to the movies? I'm like, I go to the movies all the time. Yeah. One, I go to the cinema to see movies, but also we show one every month. And, and I have to get up and talk about the picture. And, you know, like you and I did. Yeah, uh, yeah. That kind yeah. of thing. It's really fun. So I miss it more than anything because, I, you know, we love movies, Mark. And part of being the movie experience for me is watching the crowd laugh or watching the crowd freak out or their reaction after a movie's over like high and low you could tell everybody was like contemplating the philosophy of uh just to briefly the plot is um a rich guy's uh, son is kidnapped but it's the wrong son they actually kidnap his chauffeur's son so he has to decide morally whether he's going to pay the ransom or not. So it's about yeah, yeah. class, society, criminality, the police. The guy who kidnaps him lives in a crummy neighborhood at the bottom of the hill. The rich guy lives at the top of the hill. It's all symbolic and beautifully realized because it's Kurosawa. And, yeah. um, and then the Patrice Leconte ridicule one is that guys, and this one is even two, they're all two on the mark. Uh, a, a noble uh, in rural France, his town is being killed 
by the malarial swamp. So there's a plague going around his town. So he yeah. goes to the court of the Sun King to try to influence the king to give him the money to dredge the swamp. And he falls into a, a pile of intrigue, has an affair with Fanny Ardant. And, you know, it's a beautiful movie. And his ticket to getting to meet the king is that he's funny. And that's what the plot of the movie is. On his rapier wit, he builds his reputation <laughs> at court. And uh, uh, the king says, would you make a joke about me? And he says, the king is not a subject. And the king goes, oh, like, you know, he gets the joke. And uh, So these, the movies that we're showing, Jennifer picks them because of how much they're about right now. Yeah, but without, yeah, yeah. without being, you know, hitting the hammer too hard, uh, yeah, they're yeah. reflective of... of so I think that's the other thing I miss is being able to bring that kind of uh, that kind of potency that only a film can do because films are such distilled things, aren't they? They're they, they have to are, be realized. Have, but, yeah. Okay, so the, okay, these are great examples and these are great great films to talk about and great films to go back to the cinema to see. I hear you got busted watching Day After Tomorrow. Uh, yeah, I was uh, having a total meltdown a couple of weeks ago, and I watched Children of Men and Day After Tomorrow back to back. And okay, but you, but you, but you <laughs> okay, those are two. Children of Men is a really good film. Yes, it Children is. of Men is a proper good film. Yeah. Day After Tomorrow is terrible. It's garbage. <laughs> yeah. So, and the beginning of it, Dennis Quaid is uh, telling everybody that climate change is going to happen. And then literally climate change happens that next scene. And the whole world changes know, in two seconds. And, um, and by the but, way, Dennis Quaid but, but, is, is but like Dennis a Quaid, but, but, Here's the weird thing. Dennis Quaid is the spitting image of my brother. Okay. Really? So I've always loved Dennis Quaid because he, yeah, it's weird. Mm. My brother is a dead... Um, you know, for actually for good looking Dennis Quaid, you know, Great Balls of Fire right. period Dennis Quaid, Big Easy period Dennis Quaid. Okay. Yeah. So whenever I see Dennis Quaid on screen, I like him because he reminds me of somebody I love. And now I hear that he's a, oh, we should all stand beyond President Trump. Really? When did that happen? I didn't, has that been around for a while? It blindsided me. No, I didn't know at all. I was blindsided by it too. Like James Woods, we've known about because James Woods uh, famously goes to a restaurant up here on, um, uh, Santa Monica called Dantana's, which is a super old time show busy, you know, Italian with the bad food and the great drinks and, you know, yeah, yeah, yeah. too much garlic on the pasta and everything. And you can find James Woods most nights, not now, um, hate tweeting from his booth at Dantana's, like just hate tweeting Hillary all night long. And James Woods is a brilliant actor. I mean, he's funny. He's scary. What was that one with Brian Dennehy who just passed him? Bestseller. You ever see that one where he's the serial killer? He's turned into a hitman. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, he's so gifted as an actor and he's such a terrible, well, vile, you know, Greg, he's, he's a he, horrible he's, man. He's the main orifice. He, James Woods, I just always imagine him sitting on a sofa with a huge vaginal hole in his in his front, putting his hand in it, pulling out the futuristic science fiction gun, and then sticking his whole head into the television set, which has turned into Debbie Harry's mouth, and head-fucking it. That's, that's what I think of, and I think, that's great. How did you that to that? How did... How did that happen? I always, you know, wonder whether I wonder whether I wonder whether Donald Trump has seen Videodrome. Hey, Donald, look at this. This is, you know, <laughs> actually, the thought of Donald Trump watching Videodrome is just too creepy to even imagine. Yeah, anyway, back to okay, day after tomorrow. 
did it how how, how terrible was I, it because i haven't seen it since the day it came I, out. It, it was worse than I remembered. And I bailed about 45 minutes in. I pulled the ripcord. Uh, I got through the LA part with it. And then I didn't get all the way to where the world is a giant refrigerator and they're pulling each other on a sled. I remember that at the end. And he finds his family yeah. somehow. Uh, Haven't the family gone off to live in the mountains? Yeah, or something there's some, they're high uh, enough up above. I, I killed myself out of boredom about 40 minutes into it. And, um, <laughs> Uh, and Dennis Quaid's being extra super uh, earnest in it, which is really annoying. <laughs> you know, there's no, no nothing. He's just going like this and everybody's seeing. And uh, then I, I caught myself watching part of the Tom Cruise War of the Worlds, which is a shockingly boring affair, considering <laughs> how great the plot of War of the Worlds is, that, that Spielberg could make it this terrible exercise. Um, and then I went out and found a copy of War of the Worlds that my uncle had given me when I was little, and I read it. And it's such an ooky novel, and so uh, yeah. beautifully written in so much as it's almost journalistic in its detail. Like, he doesn't do any hyperbole about yeah. the aliens. He simply says, you know, then they got out of the thing, they got up in their tripod, and they killed everybody. Like, he's... Yeah, uh, yeah. but uh, I've well, there's, there's a weird, there's a weird thing in the novel, the, the woods where it all starts, those woods are very near to where my brother lives. My brother, who looks like Dennis like Quaid, Quaid. <laughs> so it's like this conversation. Yeah, and you can you can still go to those those woods, and you know that's the whole one of the brilliant things about it is the, is the understatement. It's like for me why John Wyndham is such a brilliant writer because when you read Village of the Damned, it you know it's happening in a tiny little village, and then when they filmed it here, um, you know it's it's Midwich Cookies is the novel, and uh -huh. they filmed Village of the Damned. They did it in Elstree, and actually one of the buildings in the film of Village of the Damned is a building from the school that I went really? to. I went to school in the Village of the Damned, quite literally, yeah, Oldham House features as the Grange in Village of the Damned. They used to show it at the School Film Society. They used to show a black and white, 16 mil black and white print of uh, Village of the Damned. And I used, I used to scare the living daylights out of them. Oh, that's a good one. The little, you know. The blind kids, children. You know, that I, oh yeah, I don't think you're going to London. <laughs> you know, I mean, it's just, it's just absolute genius, but I love that. I think in a way that the horror and the sense of apocalypse is made great by the smallness of yes. it, by the kind of the Britishness of it, which I think is, is really great. So look, Greg, what are you, what are you planning to watch now that you, we obviously, we still have weeks, if not months of this uh, lockdown ahead of us. Um, have you got anything that you think I, there's a classic that I haven't seen that I must, uh, you know, I must pay attention to? Yes, I'm glad you asked. Jennifer and I were having this discussion the other night. I've never seen the 39 Steps, and I've wow, if you can believe that, and I've never seen uh, what's the other Hitchcock one, Rebecca. You've never seen Rebecca. No, I mean I love The Lady Vanishes, uh, and I'll argue this till this is the hill I'll die on. I will assert that I think Hitchcock has more good films than any director. Like he has a, at least a square dozen that are just tremendous. I mean, you could say that about Bergman or, or Kurosawa or whatnot, but if we're just talking about popcorn movies, um, I, he's the one I think, more than Spielberg to me. Spielberg has a couple of movies I enjoy, but Hitchcock has a million movies that I enjoy. And I was, you know, she's like, you've never seen it. And I'm thinking, well, now's the time to watch the 39 Steps and Rebecca because I know they're good. What a treat to have a movie like that that you haven't seen to look forward to seeing for the first time. Right. I mean, that's a, that's a privilege. I think so too. Um, also, uh, there's a, a new Udo Kier film out with Sonia Braga where this creepy, like, 
proto army comes into some small South American town and infests it. Someone sent me a link to it. I I'm trying to dig it up. Uh, uh, we were talking about. I've seen it. Yeah. Is it awful or is it? No, it's great. It's called Battle, no, right, and it's um, yeah, and it's it is it is com- it's completely nuts. And then Udo Kier turns up, so it's like there's this whole weird build up that there's this this little kind of remote enclave, and they discover that they've disappeared from satellite pictures yeah. that they know that they officially no longer exist. So you know that bad stuff is going to happen, and then Udo Kier turns up, and it turns <laughs> to the most deadly game, and, right? You just, it's like you're, you're, you're a good halfway into the film before it goes completely batshit crazy. And the thing it reminded me of was some, like, you remember the first time you saw Hodorowsky, mm. at like a midnight movie screen. I mean, you, I, where, where, where is this yeah. going? And it was, it was actually quite thrilling to watch something when you genuinely thought, I have no idea where this is going. So it's got background. It's, I think you'll really, really like it. Well, I'm looking forward to that because we're, we, we, Jennifer and I do the podcast every week here and um, we get on tangents, you know, and often it's about music or movies. And um, a couple of weeks ago for no reason. And it reminded me of you because you were there when we did the Mark Radcliffe show um, in 1997. And you brought a clip from uh, uh, Frankenstein, Flesh for Frankenstein. And it's the one where I don't know yeah, if we can yeah. swear on this, but it's it, it, to, to know death auto, you must fuck it in the gallbladder. And yeah. <laughs> no, it's, it's, it's to, to, to get to get the absolute yeah. right because it's a misquotation yeah. because it's a deliberate misquotation from uh, from a line from uh, Last Tango in Paris. And in fact, I'll act it out. Yeah, please, you. please. It goes like this. He holds he holds the the, the offal. So say this is the offal. He holds it and he says to know death auto. You have to fuck life in the cold bladder. <laughs> so you having you have played that on the Mark Radcliffe show uh, that week. I think I might have even been hosting when you came on and uh, and played it. This won't be hard for you to believe, but we have it. She sent it to me on a note years ago, and there it is. And we keep it in the kitchen in a cabinet. Oh, look at that. Like, look at that. The actual quote of, from Flush. So we started riffing on Udo Kier and uh, talking about how great he is. And um, we've never met him, but we've seen him a few times around Los Angeles, you know. And I think he's moved out to Palm Springs. Oh, right. Does he live in Los Angeles? He used to live near my friend near Dodger Stadium up in the hills there, in, uh, like Echo Park. Uh, he had a little crib up there. But I think he moved to Palm Springs. We read an interview with him this year because he's still working, you know. Um, yeah. And uh, he said he loved living in Palm Springs because he was the youngest person there, which is hysterically funny, right? He's 70-something. He goes, in Palm Springs, it's like, young man, would you pass the salt? And that made me laugh because of his sense of humor. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, I, we started talking about Udo Kier and riffing on all his movies. And a cat sent me a link to the Baccarat. Yeah, and he's like, if you haven't seen this one. So we were watching the preview of it. Uh (laughs) Uh-oh. I'm not kidding. Someone from SAG is calling me right now. Yes, my ringtone is... Yes, that was a call about residuals, Mark. Uh, it's a sexy life, uh, isn't it? Oh, thank God it's for residuals. Evidently, they owe me a bunch of residual money, and uh, they they need more information. 
which is good to know because uh, this is a great time to get some residuals and also to keep my insurance going. Yeah. Because I, I am insured as an actor, <laughs> which is a horrible thing to be insured as. I just hope that every now and then Udo Kier gets a, a very small check for his work on Flesh for Frankenstein. Me too. You know, it's just... Because that's you know that's that's one of the great three D movies. Imagine and there is only one, oh, there's only one print of that movie. Sorry, there's only one three D print of that film in existence. Really? And it's owned by a guy. Yeah, and it's it's owned by a guy in Germany. Showed it at the um at the BFI as part of the horror season. He comes with the print. He arrives with the print. He laces the print onto the projector. Yeah. He takes it off afterwards and he takes it home because it is the only surviving 3D print. As, as far as I understand, when we did the horror, that was it. It was very, very hard to was get that hold Paul, of. Was so. Paul Morrissey, right? Yeah, Paul Morrissey. Um, yeah. I saw both of those movies, uh, Dracula and Frankenstein, at the drive-in theater in Burlingame, California, in high school because they came out, what, like 77, 78, 76, around there? They're, they're mid, late, mid to late seventies movies. Sounds about and then yeah, sounds about. And um, we would go because you could take everybody, right? And then we would sit outside on the ground on a blanket. We would smoke dope and drink beer and stuff. You know, we were high school kids, and those movies were so lurid, you know, and so hilariously over the top. The violence when Dracula gets his arms cut off and he's running down the hallway and the blood's going everywhere. We just thought they were fantastic, you know, and rock and roll high school, stuff like that, you know. So we would really go to the drive-in and yeah, see those yeah. Warhol movies. And um, having no idea, uh, you know, that they were supposed to have any arty intent. They were just like splashy horror films, you know. To know death, Otto, you have to fuck life in the gallbladder. The great Greg Proops. Next up in our series of extended interviews from the first ever online MK3D, I spoke to Ben Roberts, who became the new CEO of the BFI just before the current lockdown. Uh, so, Ben, uh, welcome to the, the first virtual MK3D. Um, let me begin by saying congratulations on your fantastic appointment, which you came to at a moment in which the first thing you had to do was deal with the kind of unfolding crisis. So... Tell me what the first few weeks of uh, Chief Executive of BFI have been like for you. Yeah, well, I took, I assumed the position, I think, two weeks before we had to cancel BFI Flare yeah. and subsequently close the South Bank and the National Archive. So it wasn't quite the, it wasn't quite the, the, the trajectory I was planning for all of us to sort of go into sort of new levels of activity and, and, you know, move to the next phase of the BFI. Um, so I describe it probably as many people would as quite adrenalized. It was, um, you know, I think lots of decisions were made that 24 hours previously would have seemed quite inconceivable. I had an away day with our chairman on a Friday and I think by the Tuesday of the net and that was all about you know what's the future of the BFI going to look like yeah. and uh, things were unfolding definitely by that stage he was thinking about whether they were going to close the Harry Potter tour at Leavesden or not um, and that also seemed like something he didn't want to do um, and we you know because of our role with government we to some extent have to wait and see how we are working in lockstep with them. And yeah. as someone who yeah. runs a, you know, a public building and, and has offices with lots of 
publicly funded people in it, we were we weren't entirely able to make decisions independently. So it was a, I mean it was a fascinating couple of weeks, and I'd say the adrenaline has now moved into very very considered, careful planning with the rest of the industry and the organisation about how we start to come out of it, though we don't know when we will. So when you say um, start planning with the rest of the industry, how so far has the British film industry dealt with this? I mean, I know everyone says it, and I know the word is overused, but this unprecedented turn of events. I mean, the industry has been remarkably uh, collegiate and coordinated. um, And I think we may have benefited, and I'm loath to say this, but I think we may have benefited from some Brexit planning uh, a year or so ago when the uh, DCMS, our government department, asked us to sort of come together to, to channel all of the ways in which we as an industry need to sort of think about our relationship with the rest of the world as a film industry after Brexit. So we pulled together a task force, which sounds a bit like, you know, Trump's space force, but it was, um, <laughs> it was, you know, it was a, a sort of cross industry group that came together to look at what we might need financially, policy-wise, you know, what were the things that were going to trip us up around Brexit? And actually one of the first things we did was we just pulled that task force back together. And that, you know, spans everybody, the, you know, the cinema associations, the distributor associations, the studios, independent production companies. It, it was just a way of bringing together the entire industry and saying, okay, what should we do? Um, so that group is now meeting, much like we're meeting, uh, there's about sort of 70, 80 people on those calls every week. And we're going to spend the next couple of months putting together sort of recovery proposals. You know, how are we going to deal with social distancing on film sets? How do you get people back into cinemas while there's still social, social distancing measures in place? Those are the conversations we're having at the moment. It's interesting that the, uh, the resources required to deal with Brexit and the resources required to deal with a catastrophe are so eerily similar. And uh, I know when you said, you know, I'm, I'm loath to say this, but I understand what you mean a, about the planning. In terms of the BFI, what can the BFI do and what has the BFI done to, to protect the industry or to help it through what's happening? Well, look, I think the first thing is that to say is we're, I do think we're like the beating heart of film and cinema. And as much as we sort of talk about industry and, and economics, what's happening at the moment is we're all asking each other what we're watching every day because that's what we're doing. And I think it's been a real reminder that, you know, it's like, how are you? How is your family? What are you watching? And um, I think that's been a very heartening reminder that actually what we all do and, and, you know, what you do, what we do is about storytelling and entertainment and education. And I think that that's become even more important through this period of separation and isolation because we're, we're, we're relying on culture. We're relying on our kind of collective ability to talk to each other and tell stories. So before even thinking economically or industrially, I think that's been fascinating to see how that plays out. We're also, you know, we're, we're recording this moment. We're going to try and preserve it. We're, we're going, we're running a, we're running a, an initiative as part of our national collections 
programme, which will be called uh, Britain in Lockdown. And, you know, we will be running, I think, what's quite a vital video preservation project so that in 50 or 100 years' time, we'll be able to see how collectively as a nation we were responding online to this unprecedented moment. So, you know, there are there are so many things we can do culturally, I think, as an organisation. We've made uh, and reminded everyone about the, you know, the free collections that were running on our on BFI player. And, I, you know, that's a rabbit hole you can go down. And then, you know, what, one of the first things we did was we moved the Flair Festival, our LGBTQ festival online. Yeah. And that was, you know, we were ready to do that because we have the BFI player. As you know, you're a, you know, you're a, a, a very welcome uh, participant in BFI player. Um, but, uh, you know, I think that reminded us that actually having an online channel where we can still reach an audience has been um, something we can expand on, not just for our own programs, but for the industry as well. You know, how can we get films that were due to go out and be uh, released in cinemas over the summer? Will they ever get back into cinemas should some of them move on to online platforms instead? So, Ben, before we talk about cinemas, I mean, one of the things that you focused on there is how much the industry has, you know, a huge freelance workforce, people who are not in sort of standard contractual employment. And obviously, I mean, I'm a journalist. Most of my colleagues are freelancers, and I know how difficult it's been for them because this kind of turmoil, it does hit freelancers particularly hard. It does, however, sound to me as if in a fairly short period of time, there have started to be provisions made to deal with the complexities of the industry. So do you feel quite confident about how things are moving forward in terms of looking after that very, very disparate workforce that actually makes the film industry run? Um, I do. I mean, it's really, it's a tricky moment for, for us, I think, because on the one hand, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm an optimist and I think that, and, and, I think that lots of constructive measures are being put in place. You know, I think that actually the work that um, Treasury have done has captured a huge amount of people and saved them from sort of immediate, you know, an immediate crisis. I think that the film and TV relief fund and some of the measures that we've put in place through reconfiguring some of our lottery funds just to keep money turning and f- and and keep work being created or and developed is. Um, is, is going a long way. At the same time, I just think we can't underestimate the scale of the impact this is having on the industry. And, you know, there are people who, you know, may not be able to afford to return to it if we don't make sure that they are captured and looked after. You know, we, we as an industry, have always relied very heavily on a freelance workforce. You know, it's... it's um, and I think for the last few years, because the level of TV and film production in the UK has been so high, actually, it's not been a bad time to be a freelancer. You know, that idea that you might choose a job in film or TV um, as a career has gone from being something that felt like, uh, you know, possibly something your parents would tell you not to do, to being, and you know, possibly you'll have many choices to make and you'll be well paid. So... We, we have to be careful that people don't at this point just say, look, I can't afford to be a freelancer anymore. I'm going to sort of leave this industry and sort of go on, on somewhere else. Because when production scales back up, the level of demand for crew in particular is going to be 
extraordinary. I mean, I think there will be a, a real gold rush for productions who just need to grab crew and get going quickly. So we've really got to look after those freelancers now. Um, I, I, the reason I feel optimistic is because actually we're having a really, really constructive conversation with um, colleagues across the industry and with government who are saying, you need to tell us what you still need from us because they there is a they put a huge value on the film and tv industry in the uk it's you know in the last couple of years it's become a a sort of pillar of economic success so our job has been to really explain in some detail at this stage how that how the machinery of that industry works and the machinery of that industry to some extent is freelancers i don't think anyone will um, ignore the value and the need to make sure that those um, those freelance workers remain able to work in the industry. People may think from the outside that the, the film industry has stopped completely um, during lockdown, but obviously, I mean, from my experience, film journalism is carrying on, and I imagine that you'll be able to tell us that actually the film industry is still continuing at some level with writing and development, just because films aren't actually being shot, or at least live-action films aren't actually being shot. I imagine that work is still going on. Am I right in that? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we, you know, we operate some national lottery funds from the BFI, including sort of funds for film development and production. Now production has stopped. Um, there are, there are, you know, there are many conversations about how quickly people can get on set again once social distancing measures are relaxed. But in the meantime, you're right. You know, the, the, the appetite for film and television material on the other side of this is, is going to be very high. And, we have seen no slowdown. If anything, we've seen an uptick in uh, the number of projects that are coming to us for development support right now. So writing is absolutely continuing. Um, it's interesting you make the distinction around live action because we also are supporting a number of projects that are animated that can obviously carry on Yeah. Um, quite remotely. Uh, I think there have been a number of examples of filmmakers such as Timur Bekmambetov, who was, you know, close to close to finishing a film and decided to finish it digitally. And I was reading last week about a number of sort of digital post-production facilities in the States who are now sort of moving films that were 90% there to completion digitally. So... I mean, my, my sense of the industry is that it is as busy as ever, albeit a lot of that is contingency planning. My, my worry is that we might get a few too many COVID-19 dramas. Oh, really? Um, so, I mean, some will be good. I just, it, it will be, and I think it's always interesting how art responds to crises. And so uh, over a longer period of time, you know, will we experience will we start to see an influence in work similar to, you know, uh, Wellesian sci-fi or Orwellian paranoia? You know, what will be the ultimate artistic response in filmmaking terms and in writing terms to this period of social strangeness? Um, 
I just hope it's not all too direct and obvious, if you like. I mean, my own experience of this has been, as you'll know, you know, Contagion went to the top of the iTunes charts when all this started. But actually, most of the people that I've spoken to um, about their huge appetite for, you know, for film and television drama is that they want something that isn't about what's happening at the moment. I mean, there are things that strike curve, you know, that strike uh, nerves. I was just talking about this film Sea Fever recently, which has a kind of quarantine thing, which strikes a particular chord. But actually what people want from the cinema is it's not just escapism, but it is to take them away, to take them somewhere else. And I'm, you know, watching six or seven new feature films every week, the same as I would have done when I was, uh, you know, when films were opening in the cinema. And I'm seeing, you know, a film about life in the military in South Africa. And I'm seeing a film about being on a, you know, a boat off the West Irish Sea. And what it's doing is taking me away from all this. And actually, it's, it's kind of taking me right back to when I was a kid watching Krakatoa east of Java in High Barnet, which is the most boring place on earth, but thinking, look, I'm in a world of volcanoes. That's what, that's what cinema is doing for me. Yeah. Well, I, I think you're completely right. I mean, my own, my personal viewing habits at home at the moment are, um, I'm revisiting, I'm, I'm going to watch all of every Hitchcock movie. So I'm working my way through the Hitchcocks. Um, I'm what my partner's um, uh, uh, Sikh, so we're watching a lot of Indian cinema. So I watched Cholet for the first time last week. I've got hours, you know, I've obviously got the time now to watch three and a half hour Indian dramas which is, and musicals, which is fun. Um, we've also noticed on our website that the traffic to, you know, greatest film lists has multiplied tenfold. And I think it's interesting how in these moments where people find themselves not necessarily with more time on their hands, although some people have got more time on their hands, but, you know, at home and in front of your TV, how you sort of turn to either escapism or maybe, oh, I'll, you know, I'm going to get that film education that I've always, I've always wanted, but I've never had the time to indulge myself and do it. So you know, that might also be another... Uh, silver lining from this moment is that we're all get, taking that opportunity to go back and re-explore or investigate, you know, cinema that we we haven't seen before. You know, you said you're working through all the Hitchcocks, which is you know, which is great because there are some, you know, it's such a brilliant back catalogue. Do you have a? Is there a guilty confession? Is there during all this? Has there been a moment when you thought, I'm sorry, I'm just going to watch something which I know to be rubbish, but I'm going to enjoy it anyway. The Money Pit. <laughs> That's not rubbish. That's a great film. It's Tom Hanks. How bad can any film with Tom Hanks in it be? You do mean the Tom Hanks Money Pit, right? I do mean the Tom Hanks Money Pit. I watched two films back to back, actually. One which was not The Money Pit, which was not, um, was not rubbish, actually. You're right. It holds no, it's, up. Yeah. Very, it's great comedy. Great comedy. Shelley Long, let's not forget. Also, yeah. very, very funny. Um, I also rewatched, I showed Randy um, Young Sherlock Holmes, which I remember being brilliant, yeah. but actually was not quite as brilliant. <laughs> so, uh, I think probably, probably that. But um, no, other than that, I'm being quite disciplined. I'm sticking with the I'm sticking with the Hitchcocks. We were going to run them in chronological order, and we were doing really well until I suddenly decided to watch Frenzy, and we sort of leapt forward to, um, you know, the sort of. It's a very odd film, Frenzy. I mean, I, I do sort of I do sort of love it, but it definitely feels infused with moments of sort of carry on. Almost. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's kind of naughty. 
Did you do the Did you do the silence, Ben? Did you start right from the beginning with the silence, or did you start with the talkies? You've You've called me out there. No, I, I've not been a completist, but obviously, I, I, feel, <laughs> I feel that back in I feel that back in 2012 when I first joined the BFI and we ran our major um, Hitchcock program, that yeah. I, I I had my I had my silence education. Back in 2012. So no, you've, you're right. I will add them as an appendix if we're in if the if the lockdown is extended. And just on the subject of cinemas, do you think that cinemas are going to survive this and come out of it differently? Will things have changed? I mean, I'm really conscious of the fact, and I've had this discussion with a number of people, that I really miss watching a film. In, in a group. And I mean, I'm somebody who's complained so much about, oh, it's noisy and people eat popcorn. Frankly, right now, I would sit in the noisiest, popcorniest cinema just to be a, around a group of people. Usually, as a weekly critic, I would sit in screening rooms with the same group of people. We don't talk very much, but it's just the, the company of being with them. Now, my feeling is that when this is all finished and when the time is right, nobody wants to do it too early apart from that crazy old guy across the Atlantic. Nobody wants to do this too early. But when it's the right time, I can't wait to get back to cinemas. Will the cinemas still be there for us to go back to? I mean, the independent cinemas, the art house cinemas, the cinemas that we love, will they survive this? We are, I mean, we have a really close relationship with <clears throat> independent cinema. Um, we, we have... Uh, um, a sort of an organised collective of independent cinemas called the Film Audience Network, and we um, support them with lottery money and we share programming, and it's a very tight knit group. Um, we are supporting them through this period when cash flow is proving to be um, tight, um, and you know that group feels very, um, you know, challenged, but incredibly um, uh, infused by the idea of getting audiences back into their into their buildings. And I think there's a real fighting spirit amongst yeah. the independent cinema community because that really is a community, you know, and I think you're right that the audiences to those cinemas will really be missing that sense of community because it's not just about pressing play on a film and then turning it off when it's finished. It's about the anticipation of it starting. It's about the rituals of being in a cinema. Um, and it's about coming out and sharing your like or dislike of the film. So I, I am with you in the same way that football fans will be desperate to get back into a, uh, you know, a stadium and watch a game with their mates, et cetera, et cetera. It is no different for cinemas, you know, or for people who like going shopping together in a shopping mall on a Saturday afternoon, you know, those communal activities, everyone will have their version of it and want to come back to it. I think that the stuff we're working through sort of industrially right now is, is that question of will they, will they be there? Um, I know that you know the pressure on rents for um, cinemas is probably one of the biggest yeah. challenges, and actually that's something that we're sort of talking to government about. I mean, that's the sort of re across the retail sector, as you know, what's your landlord charging you to sort of keep your lights on? Um, I think if we can get through that rents challenge, then 
then cinemas will be there. I'm worried, I'm a little bit worried about the circuits because I just think they're so, um, you know, the, 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 the pressure from a rent perspective must be so huge. But I think, you know, that's commercial business and I'm sure they will find their way through. Um, the independent cinemas, we're just staying as close as we can, helping them. We've supported a number of the independent cinemas by to keep their audiences engaged by giving them channels on BFI Player. So they're curating programs on yeah. players. So they can keep the dialogue going with their audiences. But unlike you, I mean, the, these are suboptimal experiences for watching films. And, um, you know, there's a lot, there's, there are lots of conversations at the moment around how the, whether, you know, this is the moment where streamers really kind of come into their own and, and everyone realizes that they're fine with Netflix it's just not the same, you know, it's just not the same experience. I mean, let alone the quality of content across the different platforms is very variable, but um, it is just not the same as sitting in a room with um, fellow fans. We think that cinemas will get back online and we will all have to sit a little bit apart for a while. I'm sure that will suit some and not others. I think festivals will have quite a big part to play in bringing audiences back together and reminding everybody about the very particular communal experience of getting back into a room. And we're obviously thinking about what London Film Festival might look like by October this year. Yeah. Um, and we also probably need to think a bit more about which audiences are going to come back first, because, you know, it could be that we are all released back into the wild in Demog in demographic stages <laughs> and um, you know if that's a, if that's the case then you know what what pro how are you programming for a particular if young audiences are out first you know are you and you're open and you open your doors for business does your program suit that audience's needs will an or will an older audience return more slowly either because guidance suggests they should or because they're more nervous about coming back so yeah. you know i think there's going to be lots of really interesting nuances for us to take into account and then there's the question of what films are they going to be watching you know what is when when are when do films go back onto the release calendar and uh and, and you know what kind of you know planning is done for for that so it's we, we sort of can't crystal ball gaze too much i think we're having to really take everything in one month you know, one month at a time uh, stages at the moment. Do you have any sense of how long we're talking about? I mean, when when Bond went back to November, I think it was originally, we all went, because this was very, very early on. I remember everyone going, wow, they moved Bond back to November? I mean, you know, yeah. what that's, now, of course, that seems like a very prescient, very smart, very timely move. Some people are now saying, you know, I'm not even sure that we're going to be right by November. In your as far as you can tell, and I understand exactly what you're saying about we can't, you know, it's not crystal ball gazing because nobody knows. But are you, in your heart, do you have a feeling that, that by November some form of normality will have been achieved? Um, yes, I do, actually. Right. I, I do um, because I think that we're, you know, we're starting to be privy to some some types of, 
scenario planning and we're you know that that's again where our sort of relationship with government is key because we can start to talk to them about what different sort of scenarios of easing looks like yeah um i mean to be honest with you i've seen everything from um some form of opening up again in june to um you know september being a moment when we can all expect to be back in some form or another and then another model where we open but then we close again you know yeah. we, we we open and then there's a second lockdown over the winter yeah i know so, universities um, have had a similar discussion about you know first term actually second term is then potentially a problem because of you know so nobody knows so nobody knows so i but i think that you know if you look look at the sort of international trends and i think this is where lots of work will be done um Certainly in terms of easing, we saw yesterday that Good Old Neighbours is the first production to go back into production. So, you know, I think there is, you know, how far behind Neighbours will we be in the UK in terms of <laughs> getting people back on set? And who knew we'd be sort of behind Neighbours? Um, and and so I think we'll also sort of, we'll be following, we're probably, you know, weeks or months or so behind the side of the country. So we'll sort of see how they all sort of come back online. Um, so, yeah, I do feel confident. I think that, you know, we're doing a lot of thinking around London Film Festival at the moment, which sits sort of squarely in that sort of parting of the clouds, potentially, when everything yeah. might be open again. I still think that we ha probably have to accept that London Film Festival this year is not going to be the same as London Film Festival last year. And, you know, whether it's a sort of a, a different programme mix, will talent be travelling internationally to support their films? Um, yeah. You know, I was, I was musing yesterday about the impact on the environment and whether people are going to be more um, environmentally aware. I mean, I can actually see more private jets being flown around the world for a few years <laughs> in, rather than less in terms of, you know, getting actors traveling um internationally but yeah i think i i uh, who knows but i think september still feels reasonable there are still films on the release calendar for july i mean tenet is still on the release calendar for july i know um, so we'll see i mean they who knows that might also feel as genius as bond moving to november if suddenly cinemas open and they've got the market to themselves but uh, <laughs> that, that, that's feeling unlikely i suspect now yeah. Okay. Well, Ben, listen, thank you so much. It's been great catching up with you. I'm, I'm encouraged that you, 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 ha you sound not just positive, but you sound like things are, are more under control than perhaps one might have, uh, have expected. So that's great. So I wish you all the best with, with all the initiatives. I look forward to being back in the BFI. As I said, this is the first ever virtual MK3D. It's the weirdest thing because, you know, being in theatre one of you know what i still refer to as the nft has always been a particular pleasure yeah. and i look forward to being back in there at the moment but thank you so much and uh, we'll speak to you as soon as and i'll shake your hand and share a pint with you as soon as it's actually possible yeah we look forward to having you back mark as well so thank you thank you for doing this There we go. Hope you enjoyed these extended interviews from the first ever online MK3D. Thanks for listening. Stay safe. Protect the NHS. Save lives. Keep watching the skies.
Normally, being a little extra might be a bit much, but not when it comes to healthcare. That's why United Healthcare's Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, supplement your primary plan so you manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com.